Colossians chapter 1. Today is a day like no other. The original Easter Sunday was the, the writing of things that were horribly wrong. On Holy Friday, just a couple of days ago, back on the original Holy Friday, the Lord Jesus was condemned to death and he went willingly, even joyfully, knowing that he would take into the grave all that condemns his people, freeing them. That he would emerge preeminent from the grave, preeminent in all creation, leading this great procession of his people to be glorified with great glory. He in glory and we who believe with him. Today is a day like no other. Today is also a day of great need because, unfortunately, we in this time between Christ's comings, we still know and experience some of that wrongness that persists in this age, right? Because it's all, it's all around us and even in us. It's, it's so hard to picture just what Christ's victory is like for us, right? Is it, is it just a little better than this? Is it totally different than this? It's difficult to conceive of even one moment when we have complete and exhaustive peace, joy, rest, or certainty. There's always something that's just out of our reach or just out of our control. Our, our bodies are fallen. Our emotions are often disconnected from reality. We have relationships that don't ever seem to improve. There's war, inflation. I bought a Big Mac meal the other day for eight bucks. What on earth? You're probably asking, why on earth did you do that? <laughs> QPC is my game right there, just so you know. Sleep. Sleep escapes us. Eyesight fades and all the rest that ultimately leads us to the only expression that we cannot escape of wrongness, and that's death. Well, Easter overturns all that wrongness. It clearly doesn't end it all, but it takes the sting out of it for all who believe. For those whom God has called to be his own, we are transformed from this domain of darkness, that's what the Bible calls it, to the kingdom of the beloved son. The apostle Paul is fond of talking about our lives hidden with Christ, seated above the heavens. Paul is fond of that. He says this in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Of course, we know that Paul was guided by the Holy Spirit in his writings, but you have to believe that Paul longed for what he could not see because of the wrongness that he could see. The hiddenness of Christ's kingdom is often a problem for the people of God, for all people for that matter. Because as I mentioned, and as we all know, there are still things in this world that are wrong. In some way, we expect that as members of Christ's kingdom, that we would be immune from all of that. I wish that were true. At times, we, in the midst of all of our burdens, we seek godly remedy for the burdens that afflict us. We, we strive for contentment in Christ. We strain to see above and beyond this light and momentary affliction. Again, what the Bible calls this, these days in which we walk. 
But too often, we look for the things of this world to help us to deal with the things of this world. Typical escapes. Comfort food. Isn't that interesting? Comfort food. Strong drink, casual sex, porn, gender bending, escapist gaming, money grubbing, social media, friends, politics. I've said this before. We overinvest in things like these. We overhope in them. Now, some of them aren't inherently bad, but each time we pick one up, we, we hope like this time it's going to work. And then we're devastated each time because predictably they don't work. They never work. The pursuit of dealing with the wrong things in this world by using the things of this world is, is a very old pursuit. Cain killed Abel, remember? Cain thought he'd silence his own shame at having been humiliated by his brother's righteousness by killing him. That he would anesthetize his own soul, his own way, through murder rather than through God's way, which is repentance. He sought his help apart from the Lord. Now, I have my version of that. It's not murder. You do too, I'm sure. It's too common for us to conclude that our concerns and troubles are of this world, so only the things of this world will help me to deal with them. We look beyond the Lord of Easter for our help. Are we right to do this? Why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? That's, that's the question our text answers this morning. Why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? Now, our text for all of Holy Week has been the Christ hymn of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. As I mentioned on Holy Friday, it has two parts, and in each part, Christ is pre presented as supreme, preeminent, exalted, first, phrase after phrase of this prose, you end up looking at Easter's Lord as God exalted over all. In our final study this, this morning, verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us two reasons why we should look to Christ for our help. Number one, he is God in human flesh. He is God in human flesh. And number two, he has brought all things to right order. So the question is, why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? Instead of the things of this world to try to deal with my burdens, why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? Because he is God in human flesh and he has brought all things to right order. Let's read Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, it's difficult to communicate the depth and the breadth of uh, the astounding majesty of Jesus Christ. But I pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would allow us to enter into this. 
Open our hearts to it. Change us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point is this. We should look to the Lord of Easter for our help because He is God in human flesh. Beginning in verse 18, Paul's emphasis is on the relationship between Christ and the church. He's the head, the founder, the firstborn, the preeminent. This matters to us because he is like us. The one who leads us in procession is not someone alien to us. Rather, he is God in human flesh. Look at verse 19. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this is dense. Look how it starts with the word for. Or we could say because. In the course of Paul's argument here, this verse gives us the reason why he's preeminent in the church. Looking back at verse 18, and it also begins to answer our question, why do we look to the Lord for our help? Because in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, in Christ, is the fullness of God. In the man, Jesus the fullness of God is present. Now, this is challenging to understand, right? He is a man, yet in him the fullness of God dwells. This means God himself in all of his fullness dwells in Christ. Jesus' human body was the new location of God on earth. This is new. God's fullness has been seen before, but not in this way. When Moses received the Ten Commandments on the Mount Sinai, he asked the Lord to show him his glory. Here's what we read in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses saw his glory in his name. Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet, also saw the Lord. In Ezekiel 43, verse five, we read this. As the Lord, the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When we speak of the fullness of God, we speak of true God, not a part of God. Moses and Ezekiel truly saw God. They saw what they were able to see with these finite eyes. God is spirit with no body, so it's not possible to fully observe all of God, yet he gave true glimpses of himself until Christ Similar to our verse, Colossians 2, verse 9, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, this is no logic puzzle to be put together or some fact of science or nature to be experimented and, and figured out. It's, a, it's the supernatural incarnation of the Son of God. He took on human flesh. Our Westminster Confession puts it this way. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
in the womb of Mary of her substance so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. The deity, the godness, was pleased to dwell in him. Pleased to dwell means that it was, it was God's pleasure to take on human flesh. It was the pleasure for the Son of God to assume human flesh. One English translation puts it this way, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in the Son. Do you, do you remember what the Father said at Jesus' baptism? Matthew chapter three says, Jesus was baptized and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Also at the transfiguration, when he's on the mountain and some of his glory is revealed, Luke says this in Luke 9, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As we've seen, God's fullness was on display at Mount Sinai. As it traveled, it was in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. In the wilderness wanderings, they would set up the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord would descend. When they built the temple, the glory of the Lord would descend. That very first time, forcing out all of the personnel because it was so magnificent. Paul indicates now that that fullness, the fullness of God was now in Jesus Christ, the God-man. He is the temple of God. He is God in human flesh. Mysteriously, miraculously, the Son of God took on human flesh and became as one of us, like us and unlike us. Fully human and able to withstand all the wrongness of this world and at the same time not undone by it or tempted to overcome it in a worldly way. Remember the temptations of the devil early on in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Luke chapter four, listen to the details. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So full of the Holy Spirit in the desert for 40 days, constantly being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing and he was hungry. The devil knew all of this. And he knew that if Jesus wanted to, he could turn stones into loaves of bread. I mean, if he can make all things out of nothing, he can take a stone and turn it into a sourdough. His response Matthew 4 expands a little bit. It is written, Jesus said this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. After Jesus confesses this, you know what? He was still hungry. He still hadn't eaten. But he was contented with his circumstances, trusting his father. He wasn't angry that he was being confronted by the devil. He didn't resort to a shortcut out of his affliction. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us this is what he did every day of his life and yet he was without sin. In officer training recently, we discussed this. One of the men wondered if Jesus could not sin, then did he really experience what we experience? Is he really able to identify with my struggle and help me? This is a fundamental question. So let me address it using a two-part metaphor. 
You ready? I'm going to just bottom line up front. Soul colander. Okay? All right, here we go. So, first, our souls, right, all contain at least a little bit of sin, right? A little bit of fallenness, sometimes a lot more, but at least a little bit, okay? A little inclination to welcome and allow and then follow temptation. That little sneaky inclination, which is sin, is like a secret agent of our enemy, a spy in our souls, lurking around, just waiting to call that, get the call that the temptation is coming and to be ready to let it in. When that temptation arrives on the outside, that sin agent goes and meets it, welcomes it, conspires with it, and leads us down into sin. Temptations become sin in us because the secret agent in us opens the door from the inside. James calls the secret agent desire, James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The, this sin-laden desire in all of us is the secret agent of our enemy in our souls, ready and willing to lead us to sin, okay? Soul, secret agent, now colander. Our souls are like colanders. Hundreds of little bitty holes, hundreds of little ways in, opportunities for sin to find an opening and make its way in. Little doors that the secret agent like opens and says, welcome. Colanders are easy to hold. Last night we had spaghetti. You know, you, had, you put the whole pot of spaghetti in a colander, right? What happens to the water? Drains out. And then, and then you rinse it, right, with other water. What happens to that water? It drains out, right? It's pretty easy to hold the colander even when it's full of spaghetti and the water is going full blast at it. The colander withstands a, a little bit of the pressure, right? But not that much because the water goes through. Jesus had no desires, such desires. There were no secret agents of the enemy in his soul ready to let temptation in. So his soul wasn't a colander. It was a steel bowl. Fill that bowl with water. Fill that bowl with spaghetti. The bowl is receiving the full brunt of all of that weight, right? The bowl resists the flow of water completely. There's nowhere for it to go. So it rests heavily on the bowl. The bowl has to withstand all of the pressure. Jesus had to withstand all of the pressure of the temptations and fallenness of the world. The question isn't, did Jesus really experience what we experience? The question is, do we experience what he did? Do we know the fullness and the brunt of all of the pressure of the temptation of sin? And the answer is no. Our, our souls are like colanders. We welcome sin right in. We don't resist like he does. But for him, every temptation hit him harder than any temptation hits us. You following? Why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? Well, only he knows the full brunt of what's facing you. Only he knows what exactly to ask the Father for you. Only he, by his spirit, knows precisely how to engage the word and the church to come to your aid. Only his wisdom given to us can lead us effectively through the wrongness we must face. The Bible calls him our great high priest who ministers to us perfectly all the time. How to, the question is, how do you and I tap into that? How do we receive the help that we get from the Lord of Easter? Well, it's simple. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We repent of our sins, declaring our need for him. And then what does he do? He gives us his Holy Spirit. When we receive the Spirit, he gives us access to all the power and the wisdom and the strength that Christ received. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that he beat back the devil in his temptations. It was by the power of the Spirit that he obeyed the law perfectly, that he withstood our punishment on the cross, and that he rose from the grave. It's by his Spirit that he imparts wisdom to the church, guidance to the church, grace to the church. We tap into this by faith in Christ, and then by prayer, and then by your brothers and sisters in the church, and then by the Word of God, and then by the Lord's Supper. Beloved, instead of turning to whatever is our chosen escape or comfort that we think will assist our souls, we must turn to Christ by his spirit and his word and his church, and we will find help for our souls. You might still be burdened or suffering, but you'll be contented, restful, peaceful in the midst of it. Why should we look to the Lord of Easter for our help? The first answer Paul gives is because he is God in human flesh and only he can provide what is truly needful for us by his wisdom, his experience living in the world. There's a second reason we need to look to the Lord of Easter for our help. It's in verse 20. It is because he has brought all things to right order. Look at verse 20. The fullness of God was pleased, verse 20, through him to restore all things to himself making peace by the blood of his cross, whether things on the earth or things in the heaven. Once again, the the way of restoration and reconciliation is none other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is God's choice to make all things right. What does it mean to restore all things? This word, also translated reconcile, means to, to bring broken and alienated or isolated things back to their right order their right function. Everything in this world is subject to fallenness, right? Everything is a little off kilter from how God initially created it. It still all serves the purposes of the Lord, but in a way of lesser glory. Now creation rages against us in storm, earthquake, or drought. Animals fear us or hunt us, depending on where you live. Pollution, trash dumps, poverty, avarice, exploitation of women and children. So Jesus, the man, has the fullness of God and through him to restore all things. So what is all things? He clarifies at the end of the verse, things on earth or things in heaven. And this might not normally be how we think about the extent of Christ's sacrifice, is it? We typically limit its impact to the salvation of God's people. That's surely correct, but perhaps that's too small. It's easier to think with that limit in mind when we use the word reconcile. That's why I translated it as restoration, so that we could see that Paul's point in saying to restore all things fits with whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this is important. The Apostle Paul says that through Christ, all things have been restored. Let's think of creation for a moment. Oceans, wildlife, that stuff hasn't sinned. These don't need to be reconciled as if they're alienated from God. Rather, listen to how Paul describes creation in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation groans. While still subject to the one who created all things, sin's presence has altered it. Like, take a drop of red food coloring and put it in a glass of water. It's still water, 
but all of it's been affected, all of it's been tainted. Creation needs to be restored, refashioned, reordered to the way it was. The only way that is possible is if fallenness is removed from it. The blood of Christ shed on the cross was the means by which God has done that. Well, you might be thinking, how is it that all things have been restored when there's still so much that's wrong in the world? Here's where we have to pick up a, a very important interpretative tool, a way for us to look at the world. It's just this phrase, already, not yet. Paul says this restoration has brought about peace. So how do we understand this peace? Again, in two ways. The saints already have the peace of God. The already part about Christ's restoration is that the saints have the peace of God, the peace bought by the blood of Christ. We now have peace between us and God, and we have peace between people. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 17, that by our love for Christ and each other, the world would see that the Father sent the Son to save sinners. In just a few verses from our text in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul speaks of the peace that the saints already have with God. And you, he says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Ephesians 2, 13, Paul speaks of our already peace that we have with each other. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There's nothing like this outside the church. There's nothing like this outside the church. Outside the church, without uniformity, what do you have? Conflict, right? Inside the church, we have unity, peace in him. We don't need uniformity. This is already happening in our midst. It's already happening in the saints. The peace of God exists. We have been restored to God and to each other. That's the already. But what's the not yet? Where don't we have final peace yet is that we aren't yet in the new creation. Remember, it groans. We're not yet in the time when, as Paul writes to the Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will only happen when Christ returns. When Christ returns, the full restoration of creation will be evident in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that drops down out of heaven for us. So in the meantime... Now what we feel is the not yet. We feel it in our experiences. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. We feel it in our bodies. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That sacrifice on the cross where the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelled is the single means God uses to restore an orderly creation. Peace now in the saints, later in the new heavens and the new earth. A place of peace in the church and a place of expectation in the world. We should look to the Lord of Easter for our help because he has brought all things to right order. Think about that for a moment. Paul is crystal clear 
that through Christ and his blood shed on the cross, all things have been brought back into their proper order. Nothing is left out of order. Everything is either in order now or it is in process, the already and the not yet. Let's talk about two points of application here. First, the not yet. What, what should our expectations be of this world? As we, as we look on the world and we see what's happening in it, and we see our own worlds and what's happening as a part of that, what should our expectations be? Through the blood of Christ, he has brought all things to right order, and yet you and I still have to live in the midst of what has not yet been put right. Number one, here's what we do. We have to recognize that Christ indeed has already restored all things. Simply, that means it's only a matter of time until we see the new heavens and the new earth. That's the picture in Revelation 21. After the final judgment, at the end of time, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Lord has restored the new heavens and the new earth. It is where he is making a place for his people. He keeps it unseen until that day when all wrong has been judged, when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Once that's complete, then it will descend to rest forever. Paul says that once the sons and daughters receive our new heavenly bodies, once the Lord returns, at the same time, a new heavens and a new earth will descend to us. It has really happened. It's just unseen. And it's only a matter of time. But the second thing about this is that until that day, creation will groan because the Lord hasn't restored it. The Lord isn't restoring what is before our eyes. He has restored all of creation to be delivered to us in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not in our experiences currently. That means all aspects of fallenness that we currently experience will continue on. The gospel will go forth and more and more people will receive the peace of God, yet they, like us, will be beset with a fallen world. And listen, why wouldn't it be that way? Would God rather that we hunger and thirst after a creation that we can restore or the one that Christ has already restored and waits to be revealed on that last day? That means, beloved, our expectations of this world need to be modest. We do what we can as we can. And this is really important. We look, we look past the Lord of Easter in part because we think too much of this world and what we can make out of it. I wish commencement speeches went like this. Graduates about to walk across the stage. Be all you can be in Christ through the local church and do what is good and helpful in the world while we wait for the next. You ever heard a commencement speech like that? No. No. No, instead, we're surrounded by messaging that says that this world is all there is. Grab all that you can now. No, you can be anything you want and you should be without any mention of holy, godly, fruit of the Spirit, members of a church eating the means of grace. And because we think too much of this world and not the next, you know what we do? We stress over it, right? 
We stress over what we can't change. We're anxious about this. We're anxious about grades. We're anxious about job, about health, about cars. We're anxious about everything. We're desperate for this world to be different. No war, no political strife, lower taxes, less anger, less pollution, you name it. Listen, these are good things to work to change for sure. I'm not sure there's a bigger political animal in this room than me, okay? But beloved, our aims must be more modest because all of the things that we long for are a part of the new heavens and the new earth and they will be delivered to us at the end of this age. So in the meantime, our aims must be modest. We don't think too highly of ourselves or our abilities. We don't hope too much in the things of this world. We don't worry too much over hard things or broken things. We're aliens and strangers here. So our concerns and our claims to the thing of this world aren't permanent. They shouldn't be permanent. If you put your faith in Christ, you're, you're not a citizen of this world. What you're a citizen of, you do not see now, but one day you will. The second point of application here is where, again, where is restoration and reconciliation found now? We talked about the not yet. Where is the already? It's in the church. When I say in the church, I mean in the fellowship of those who have been born again by God's Spirit, where the peace of God is already found and flows. Every faithful local church. Now, this means a couple of things. Number one, only in the church in the community of the redeemed are all the things that separate us from God eliminated. We have peace with God. If we have peace with God, then what is most disordered, our relationship to our creator has been restored. Listen, that's the most important peace we need, isn't it? The scripture's testimony is clear. We are dead to God in our trespasses and sins. We are guilty of Adam's sin. And we add our own sin on top of that. We are unable to reach for the things of God. We have no interest in the things of God. Only the things of this earth matter to us. But do you know where the things of this earth find their termination? The lake of fire. We were alienated, isolated, rebellious, blind to our sins. Long ago, the psalmist said this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And what did he find? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Yet these things were all taken upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, our mediator, and they were carried with him into the grave. And they no longer condemn the one who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel truth then says, Romans 8, 1, you know it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we stood under the waters of baptism, having confessed our faith in Christ, we entered a community of God's people, his beloved, where the peace of God is found, where the peace of God flows in ministry. Not so outside the church. Jesus says, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen, if you have never sought Jesus Christ for cleansing from your sins, maybe you don't think you need them. 
Maybe you think it's okay just to come to church once in a while, flip a buck in the box back there once in a while, maybe lift up a prayer at dinner time or something like that. If you've never sought Christ to cleanse you from your sins that will condemn you to hell forever, then every day in this life, every day in this life, you will seek to locate your help from the things of this world. Empty shelves, an endless search among empty shelves, and you'll find nothing And in the end, you will come face to face with your maker with whom you have no peace. Listen, why not instead stop striving after vain things, vain comforts, and turn to Jesus Christ? Don't you want rest from your soul? Don't you want the peace of God? Don't you want joy that is undimmed by the broken things of this world? The greatest disorder anyone outside of Christ is the one deepest in the soul. And that is out of our reach, but not out of the reach of the grace and mercy of God. He requires nothing of you, but that you repent of your sins and you embrace Jesus Christ. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true, but it is true. It's probably the only thing in the universe that's too good to be true and true at the same time. Amen? Man. The Lord of Easter is calling you to draw near to him. Receive him and his peace. Church, my beloved, are we yet contented? Do you know the peace of God? I mean, do you experience the peace of God? I mentioned that it's found in here, it flows in here. Is that your experience? Has God's providence become your delight? When things in your life get hard, do you think that, well, this is hard, but at least I'm not receiving the wrath of God, so hard is better than condemned? Or when things are good, are you blessing God for his kindness and are you reaching out in generosity? Beloved, contentment is key to knowing the peace that Christ has already earned for us. He's earned peace for you in Christ. You turn to him, receive that peace, and ask him to help you rest in it. We will not find, newsflash, we will not find the comfort, satisfaction, or help for our souls apart from Christ. We just won't. He has not designed those things so that you and I might find more delight in them than in him. Secondly, through the church, We find the peace of God that transcends understanding. Outside, there is no peace. Inside, there is. We don't just have reconciliation and restoration with the Lord. We have, you and I, have the opportunity to know real peace. Here's what I mean. In the church are men and women who are older than we are, more experienced than we are, wiser than we are, more patient than we are, and more hopeful than we are. Now, all of this is very good because you and I don't know what we don't know. We don't know how to seek the peace of God in circumstances that are new to us. I have some idea of what a 52-year-old finds in the peace of God, but not a 53-year-old. But some of you knew. Too often our, our problem is that we think there are no better counselors out there for me than me. Not even turning to God in prayer is as effective as me sitting down and figuring this out on my own. I don't know if you're like that. I have my moments when I'm like that. You say you don't know the peace of God. I will respond by asking you if you've sought out others in this church 
to assist you in finding your way to that peace. I've said that, I, I don't know how many times. Thousand? No, I haven't preached that many times. A lot. It's true. It really is true that in this local body, in this church, there are men and women who have been where you've been. Who, if you ask them, if you say, hey, look, I'm here and I hate it. Someone will say, oh, I was there. I hated it too. Let's talk about it. It's in here. If you don't know the peace of God, beloved, then why are you not seeking out others in this church to assist you in finding your way to peace? Seeking honest Christian fellowship. I know you think, okay, the church is not a safe place. Well, it's not safe. You know why? Because of you. Because of me. It's not safe because there's sin here. But this is the place where God has chosen his temple to be. Listen, this isn't just for older people. Okay, if you're not old, look at me. <laughs> That's your question. Everybody's still looking. <laughs> Children and students and young adults, the church is the only place where you can get true and lasting answers and help in your anxiety, your stress, your uncertainty, and your sadness. Now, you might still struggle. We all do. But struggling from a place of hope is far better and far different than struggling to find hope. Indeed, help to find hope is what the Lord has given to us. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who has ordered all things and he has left us with his means of grace, the preached word that reminds us of the promises of God and the visible word around the table, which feeds us, sustaining us in this life. The supper is proof that he has restored all things to himself. It's proof that in Christ you already have peace, and when he returns, all will be at peace. So let's eat. Parents, if you'd sent your kids to Kids Quest, go collect those up. And brothers, if you're serving, please join me up front.